Hi, this is Corey Olson, and welcome to Students of the Word. This podcast consists of recordings of the weekly Bible study I've started running in February of 2022. I'm doing close reading, uh, which means we're going very slowly, thinking really carefully about the words, how everything fits together, and then, of course, also thinking about what this means for us and what we do with it. Thanks for listening, and I pray that God will bless the reading of his word as we study together. Okay, welcome to episode 13, in which we actually do get to the end of that first paragraph. Today, we're going to spend a good deal of time talking about what it means for Jesus to be our propitiation uh, with that rather peculiar word that John uses there uh, to talk about that. And we look at uh, the big picture of this paragraph, this long paragraph now that we finally finished. So I hope you enjoy and are blessed by our discussion today. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Students of the Word. This is session number 13. And today we are going to come to what is actually the end. A couple of weeks ago, uh, when we were looking at the end of chapter one, um, I you know, had I was convinced that that whole latter part, uh, you know, of chapter one from verse five on uh, was a paragraph. Um, as we started chapter two last time, I became convinced that the first two verses of chapter two really are part of this thought um, that, um, you know, I keep saying that the chapter and verse divisions are just later editorial guides uh, and that I don't always agree with where they split things up. Um, And uh, it's not always it's not always like wrong, uh, but I don't always agree with it. And I think that this is, you know, so having like just said that last week, uh, I think we've immediately come upon an example of it. Um, so I think if we go to, um, if we go to the entire paragraph, I think it's really important to see the whole um, uh, kind of rhetorical buildup to um the end of this first paragraph right so like let's just read through it and listen to how listen to the the structure of it like the shape of how he's saying things here this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that god is light and in him there is no darkness at all if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness we lie and do not practice the truth but if we walk in the light As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hear how that builds, right? So we get the introduction, right? Verse five is the introductory statement, right? This is the message. So like, there's his cue. Keep in mind, you always have to keep in mind whenever you're reading an ancient text, you have to remember how it was originally written. I don't just mean the cultural context. I don't just mean the language or anything like that. I mean, like literally what it was written on and how that writing worked, right? Ancient manuscript has very little in the way of punctuation. It has very little in the way of, I mean, most of the things that we rely on, um, you know, punctuation, 
paragraph breaks, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, most of those are conventions that were brought in with the printing press um, and are made uh, easier by uh, when with the cheap replication of stuff that is like you have to be less mindful of space in many ways um but um anyhow so uh what this often what this means is that in an ancient text where even poetry like line breaks in poetry for instance another modern convention not generally found uh in ancient manuscript texts um so you have to understand from context um how everything works right uh, and therefore as a writer you are generally if you're any good as a writer providing contextual cues in order for people to understand this right um how do you know where a sentence begins and ends right well you shape it in a particular way right um you shape it in a particular way or in one of you know one of many particular ways right in order to signal to your reader um where things go um i was talking remember we were talking about this a little bit back in the first paragraph um when i was talking about the way in which john seems to be signaling the fact that what we have as verse two is essentially parenthetical right they didn't have punctuation for that right um uh, but uh, the way that he frames that with the word manifested, that word revealed, right? And the life was revealed and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and which was revealed to us, what we have seen and heard proclaim we unto you, right? As he then goes back to his main idea, um, the way that he frames that sort of signals that, uh, that it's, it seems to me anyway, the signal that it's parenthetical. Um, notice how he begins with a clear signal that the paragraph is starting, right? This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, right? Um, that's, a, that's, that, that's a pretty clear signal, right? Okay, so I, I mentioned the proclamation, right? I talked about proclaiming things. I then went on to explain in verse three and four why, uh, instead of giving the proclamation, I explained why I'm proclaiming, right? Now I'm gonna hear we're proclaiming. Right. This is the message that we have heard from him. So, okay. So he signals the start of the paragraph and then he gives that core concept, right? The core concept that's going to inform everything that he says in the rest of the paragraph. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Right. He establishes that as the central idea. Then we have this, the fat central portion of this paragraph where he's elaborating that, right? What does that mean? What does that mean for us, right? Um, if God is light and in him is no darkness at all, then what for us, right? And we can see how he kind of sustains and brings together all of these things through his parallel structure. This is one of the reasons that I was paying a lot of attention to this, because this seems to me uh, to be a really important kind of literary technique that John is using in order to connect these ideas to, to sort of hold all of these ideas together, right, as part of this one idea. So we, we, we look at all this, the parallel structures that we've been seeing, right? Not only do we have this sort of twofold division all the way through, like if we say this, then we do, you know, we lie. But if we walk, we have fellowship. If we say uh, we are deceiving ourselves, if we convince our, confess our sins, he is faithful. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, right? Um, so we have, you know, all, and, and, then, and we looked what's more, uh, the way that he sort of shapes that inside that 
the mere so it's it's not just the mere repetition of that structure, right? Which kind of keeps us in this same logical flow all the way through. But we saw how he binds those ideas together through the patterns that he places within those, right? Six, eight, 10, and seven. And, you know, the, the sort of the negative ones, right? The, if we say this, uh, then we lie. If we say this, we're deceiving ourselves. If we say this, we make him a liar, right? And so, so we see both the consistency of that shape, the parallelism there, but also the variations, right? As he is, uh, 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 you know, again, even just what I was just saying, right? We lie, we deceive ourselves, we make him a liar, right? You see the way in which he's um, uh, introducing these new ideas, which are in parallel, but they're not, they're clearly not identical, and but they inform each other. And then we've got um, eight, or sorry, uh, seven and nine uh, in the middle, the, the positive ones. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and the clear repetition and patterns there. Um, uh, so then we get into verses one and two of chapter two. The my little children is a, this is a, a, so what is he signaling here? Like as we're listening to this and keep in mind, the vast majority of us will be listening to this. That's another thing to keep in mind. Again, not just how is it written on the page, um, but what does it sound like? What is the effect upon a listening audience? Because the vast majority of the people who are receiving this will be receiving it orally. The Bible was designed to be read aloud. All of the Bible is designed to be read aloud, and it is all 100% of the Bible is written with the expectation that the majority of the people who receive the Bible will be receiving it by ear. That is an obvious and observable fact from the early days of like, I remember, think of all of the instructions in the Torah, right? About how and under what circumstances the law is to be read aloud to the people, right? Um, all the way through, you know, Paul saying, uh, read this letter to everybody and, and then read also, you know, the letter uh, uh, to the Laodiceans, right? all the, you know, we know that these were read aloud in groups. That's, and that's not just a Bible thing. That's an ancient literature thing all the way through the Middle Ages. All the way, it's not until the printing press, um, which made access to literature really common, that literacy became either very widespread or very necessary, frankly. Um, uh, so this is a little hobby horse of mine. People are always talking about literacy as if when people talk about literacy in the ancient world or the medieval world, they talk about literacy as if the same cultural stakes attached to literacy then as they do in our world. Someone in our world, in the modern world, who is not literate is at a severe handicap. That was not true in the Middle Ages. That was not true in the ancient world. Um, those worlds were simply different. Um, it's If you can use a little imagination and know a little history, it's not hard to reconstruct the idea of like what a world without literacy would look like and how people can still be uh, you know, intelligent, highly functioning members of society without literacy. It's optional under many, it has been optional for a long time. Not anymore, but it has been. Uh, it was for a long time and certainly was in this world. So anyway, what I'm building up to here is my little children, right? The role of that 
transitional word, my little children? What is the effect of that, right? Notice the one thing that it clearly does is break the pattern. All of his statements, the five statements he had just been making after his setup, right? Um, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We've had if, 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 right? Five if statements all in a row, right? That also, by the way, notice how that also tells you when sentences start and stop, right? Um, Like here's the five things that you need to be thinking about, right? And now you can stop thinking about this because now here comes the next one, right? If, 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 if. And then he totally changes that, my little children, right? But it's not just a break in the pattern. It's a very particular break in the pattern. It's very familiar in fatherly, Stephen, just as you say. Um, He is now addressing them. Think how that one circles back to the start of the paragraph. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, right? Um, Now, that's fairly neutral, right? This is the message. Here, Here it is. Right. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to qualify that. Right. I'm not going to characterize that. You know, he could have been like, here is the loving message or like, this is the, you know, uh, the, the, the message of mercy that we, right. I mean, there are ways in which he could have like tried to signal at the start what they were going to get from this. Right. But he doesn't, he's very neutral. This is the message. Right. All he does is he says like, this is the message that we announced to you. Right. And announced to you, I think he's connecting back to remember what he'd been talking about in verses one through four, talking about proclaiming things, right? Remember, proclaim was our verb finally uh, in that long first sentence of the epistle, right? So I think that's him signaling like, okay, the announcement, the proclamation, here it comes, right? Finally, right? I'm now going to deliver it to you. The one other thing that he adds, apart from that tag to indicate to people, okay, are, are you ready? I hope you're ready now. You've had four, four verses to get prepared, understand the context and where this comes from and why this is important. Okay, here it comes. God is light and in him is no darkness at all, right? The, in addition to that, the only other one thing that he qualifies it with is we have heard from him, right? So he, he asserts the authority of this. This comes straight from Jesus, right? This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Okay, so, but now how he contextualized this, recontextualizes the, the sort of attitude of this whole thing uh, in verse one of chapter two. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Which of course brings us back to verse four, right? The end of his first paragraph. Um, he had finished before by saying these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Right. Um, And he comes back to that again. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right. Um, And I think that the shift from the first person plural, which he's been in all the way through his if statements, right. uh, To the second person so that you may not sin. I write these things to I first person singular first time ever. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. I think that this makes it more personal, right? He's like me, John, I am talking to you, right? I'm talking to you because I don't, I I, I want you not to sin. I want you to stop sinning, right? Um, My little children, right? That my little children I think is a pretty clear rhetorical indicator and we'll see him do this in other places. Um, 
he won't always he he pulls out the little children thing uh several times uh over the course of this epistle that this is going to be a little motif of his this is a common move for john in this epistle to pull out the little children address um in fact he's going to get kind of fancy with that in the middle of chapter two which is a really fun passage actually i can't wait to get there um but um um but he's um this particular usage um at this moment at this kind of moment in a paragraph he's just been explaining a bunch of things right he's just been kind of laying out uh a really meaty set of teachings right and now he's going to pull it in now he's going to signal to us uh not only signal to us this paragraph is almost over right um but is also going to make a very personalizing move right my little children i am writing these things unto you so that you may not sin right and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous and by the way this is also another a pattern that we'll see he like the my little children thing is often like the beginning of the last sentence or the beginning of the second to last sentence like there's often more that comes after that um and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world um now and just can't you hear the way in which that verse sounds like the end of the paragraph, right? Um, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, I, this is, and so uh, notice the shape there. That's really cool, right? Message, general teaching about the message, right? getting us to kind of think it through with all of those parallel structures and stuff and the connections he can establish and the way he elaborates it, which is really effective. And then personalizing, right? I am writing these things to you for this reason, because I want you to take this to heart in this way. And I want you to know these things. And I want this to be made real to your life. And then, and not only you, but the whole this 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 applies not just to you but to everybody right this is life changing news for the entire world right um and there you know we end uh um all the world right holo to cosmo uh is our uh is our our final phrase right um the whole world and that's a that's a that's a it's a pretty good ending point um, for this uh, for this first paragraph. Um, now let me let's just dive in to the core question of verse two. Um, I'm tempted to kind of talk about other stuff first because I don't want to get I don't lose the other stuff in the shuffle, but let's address the word, which is to me like the elephant in the room in verse two, which is propitiation. That's the big word, right? He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. What does John mean 
when he says he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Um, and okay. This gets really hard very quickly. Um, so remember what I've said, the very first thing that we should do when we're trying to figure out what an author means, means by a word is to see how, when else this author uses it. And he does use it elsewhere. So what is the word? In the Greek, where are we? There it is. Helasmos. Helasmos is our word. Uh, that's the word in question, right? And we go to helasmos, and where else is it used? Um, well, sorry, that's not what I wanted. I think this is what I wanted. Yeah. Um, well, no, it's not quite. Hang on. Where's my, where's my problem? I think I should maybe just got to scroll down further here. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah, here it is. Okay. This word is used twice, both only in this epistle, right? So he uses it in chapter four. He's going to come back to this again. So that's handy. We'll get another context for this. Um, so to some extent, when we're looking at this the first time, are these, are these ads new? I don't remember these ads popping up before on this. Uh, but anyway, um, when, um, when we come around to it again in verse, in chapter four, we'll be able to, um, uh, we'll be able to, see this a little bit more clearly, right? We'll have at least two contexts in which to try to evaluate and understand how he's using this word. Um, so that, again, the first thing is you, 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 you look around at other places. Let's go ahead and just peek ahead. Let's just peek ahead to see if it will help us at all. Um, that is actually not super helpful. Why do we get a, a graph there? That's or a table rather doesn't seem very helpful. Uh, so let's, hang on, let's go back here. Let's go to 410. Now let's see, it's going to be hard. Like this is not going to help greatly. The reason I'm hesitant to do this at all is because we're losing the context. Like we need to see how it fits into the paragraph as a whole and into the whole flow of his argument at that point. Um, uh, I was, I just recently read a book uh, on a recommendation uh, called How Not to Read the Bible, which I thought was a very interesting book. Um, and one of, his, uh, one of his rules is never read a Bible verse, which I think is a very good rule. Um, anytime you just kind of pick a Bible verse and read it uh, without understanding the context, it's one of the dangerous things about the chapter and verse uh, annotation, actually, um, is that it makes, it gives us the very difficult to resist idea that a verse is a unit, like it's a legitimate unit. Like you're, you're reading an entire verse, you're, you're getting something, right? Um, whereas if you think about the same thing, like think about a, like a novel or a short story or a poem, right? And just imagine taking a line or like a, a random sentence um, out of a book and quoting it. As if you're quoting, then I know this happens all the time on the internet. I know, right? But like, that's exactly the problem. It's usually problematic when that happens, right? But if you just, anyway, whatever. Okay. So never read a Bible verse. Totally true. Um, but um, okay, let's see. Um, 
Right. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Yeah. So he's talking about love. Yeah, I remember this passage. Uh, Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. Okay. He loved us and sent the son as a halasmon for our sins. Um, In this is love, or as the King James says, here is love. Not that we loved God but that God loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Um, okay. That's, well, that's a little bit helpful. I work, we can't go too far because like to try to put that in context, I mean, we're getting there, right? We're, we're, we're working on putting that in context is what we're doing, right? Um, as we're getting there, but actually it does help me a little bit uh, in some ways, or rather confirms a conviction that I, a pretty strong conviction that I have about John's usage of this word here. Um, Because as I said, our problem is that we don't have any other help. We don't have any other help from the New Testament on the word hilasmos. John is the only one who uses it. He uses it twice in this epistle, and it is never used by anyone else in the New Testament anywhere. Um, So that's challenging then. Um, any of you wonderful scholars who are here live with me, if any of you has access to the Greek Septuagint, could you tell me if the word hilasmos is used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the New Testament? Thank you, Hega. Absolutely. It's used six times. Where? Um, and Hega, my specific question is, is it used in Leviticus? And if so, where? That's what I'm especially interested in. Because I have a theory, and I want to test that theory on the Septuagint. Leviticus 25, okay, okay. Um, uh, Leviticus 25, 9. So let me, let me just, I'm getting my, my, uh, my uh, I'm going to look this up in my cumbrous old fashion, as uh, uh, Dr. Van Helsing would say. Um, okay, right, now, numbers 5, 8, that one I was pretty sure of. But um, it's only only used once in Leviticus? Really? That's very interesting to me. Okay. Um, so 25.9. Oh, it's the Day of Atonement. So it's talking about Yom Kippur. Okay. In the Day of Atonement. Right. Okay, so it's so it's it's an atonement word. It's it's the, the word kapor, the kip, the um, the word from which the atonement, like the Hebrew word for atonement, is uh, is where it comes up, right? Okay, okay, um, all right. The, let's start with the English word propitiation. What does that mean? Well. The word propitiation usually means to appease someone's anger, like a sacrifice of propitiation would have were routinely made uh, to like the Greek and Roman gods, for instance, um, whenever you have like a relatively um, it's funny. So I was about to use the word capricious because that's the word that one traditionally uses of pagan deities like this. Um, I'm actually not even sure that that's really accurate. It, I mean, 
the Greek gods do look a little bit capricious at times, but I'm not sure that that's fair. I think that the word adjective capricious as applied to pagan gods uh, is a biased and cynical word, I think, most of the time. Um, That is, when I actually read pagan literature, uh, the sense that I have is not that they believe the gods to be, like, caprice implies an arbitrary, like a genuine arbitrariness, right? Like a god who says, I don't care. Like, I just do whatever I feel like, and uh, you're not going to know. And what I feel like is going to change day to day. So, like, you know, I'm going to keep you guessing, right? That's the kind of the idea behind the capricious pagan gods. And there's an element of that. Um, but I'm not convinced that the pagans thought of their gods as capricious or described their gods as genuinely capricious in that way. But rather, their wills are inscrutable. Like, we don't, you just don't know. You just don't know for sure. They're not necessarily consistent. They're not necessarily, um, but more importantly, you just might not know. They're, like They might operate under a consistent set of rules. You just don't know what those are, right? Um, and so you are likely to screw up. Um, you are likely to do something that sets them off because you just like, you didn't understand. Um, uh, it's the same way in which people who read fairy tales badly uh, tend to say things like, oh, there's all these, like all these random things happen in fairy tales. They're not random. They're weird. They're strange. They follow a very different set of rules, but there's clearly a set of rules there, right? We might not know why, you know, if you tell somebody about this thing that happened, then this other thing will, you know, will, will happen. Like it's the, the, the rules seem, might seem arbitrary to us, right? But this is because we don't understand them. Right, and they're different from the rules we we normally operate. But there's clearly a set of rules. Fairy tales always have sets of rules, right? That's like a one of the main things about fairy tales when you actually read them carefully. Same thing with pagan gods. I think I, I think it's a similar kind of thing. Um, it's not that there are no rules; it's just that they don't care enough to explain them to us, right? Uh, and so therefore you gotta, you gotta be careful, right? You gotta cover your bases. Um, this is why like, you know, when you're doing pagan ceremonies, uh, you know, you, you like do sacrifices to everybody, like basically, right? Because you don't know, like somebody might bless you. Somebody might curse you. Um, you're, it's, you're not privileged to the information of who's going to be paying attention, who is invested in this particular thing. So not knowing you got to hedge your bets, right? You got to try to figure it out, right? Um, anyway, so the concept of propitiation is drawn from that sort of context when uh, the you've got either you're trying to get a God to do uh, a certain thing, right. Um, To show favor to you in some way or to not be angry at you, right. To turn away the wrath uh, of an angry God. Those are the two ways in which the word propitiation tends to be used. And the the concept of the sacrifice of propitiation uh, sort of comes from. Um, Now, obviously in the context of the Hebrew Bible, this means something different. And the idea of atonement, um, as in that, that uh, Kippur word, uh, the Hebrew concept of atonement, um, which is connected not only to like Yom Kippur and the sin of atonement, the, the sacrifices of atonement that are made, but even like the, the mercy seat, which is, as I understand, a fairly terrible translation of that. Well, not terrible, but it's not a great translation of the top of the, you know, the, the, 
golden cover of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Um, but it's the atonement place. It's like that's 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 that same word. That atonement word is being used there. Um, it's the 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 atonement cover, basically uh, something like that. Anyway, um, this concept of atonement um, and the idea of sacrifices that accomplish atonement. Like this is a very core idea, of course, throughout the Hebrew Bible. Um, um, <laughs> the sin of atonement, atonement for sin. Yeah. I apologize, Stephen. I miss, <laughs> I miss my, not the sin of atonement. That would be very different. Uh, the sacrifice of atonement. Uh, I think when I said the sin of atonement, Stephen, I think that was me and my, I was, I was thinking of the sin offering and the sacrifice of atonement. Uh, at the same time, and I kind of elided them together uh, tragically there. That's really funny. Thank you for calling me on that. I, I uh, Sometimes my brain goes faster than my mouth. Um, yes, the sin offering was what I was thinking there. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm not, not trying to get into do- <laughs> extremely, extremely dodgy theology there, uh, there, Stephen. Uh, anyway, okay. So um, we have these concepts in the Old Testament, but so that you have to think that first and foremost, when John is talking about a propitiation, a sacrifice, right? He is thinking, I mean, it's, it's, it's always possible that um, New Testament writers are making connections to their contemporary society, especially when the audience that they're speaking to is not, are not necessarily of Jewish background, right? Um, and won't necessarily just be like thoroughly grounded in the Hebrew Bible all the way through, right? Um, uh, Paul does, we see that, you know, Paul doing this kind of thing, especially, you know, in like uh, Corinthians and stuff like that. But um, uh, so it's sometimes when the, they use language like this, like propitiation, it's conceivable that he is making a parallel to, or like sort of using as an, as an image or a metaphor, something from outside, you know, from, from the contemporary pagan culture, that's possible. Um, myself, I don't believe that very much when it comes to this passage, mostly because I haven't seen any evidence yet, um, in this epistle that John is, is sort of thinking that way. I do think that we can see him thinking in, uh, fairly Jewish terms, right? Uh, uh, Hebrew Bible stuff. And honestly, like, to me, that's sort of the default. If someone's talking about sacrifices in the New Testament, probably the thing first and foremost they're thinking of are the sacrifices from the Hebrew Bible. Um, so what is a propitiation of our sins, right? What is a sacrifice of atonement? What is that about? Um, now the idea that's associated with this, as I said, there are two ways in which an offering of propitiation, like two kind of, um, contexts, um, uh, um, two contexts in which we get propitiation. One is to ask for favor, ask for mercy. And the other is to turn away wrath, right? And those two, two things are, are connected, right? They're cousins of each other, but it's not exactly the same thing, right? Um, hey, can I have a favor? And please don't hurt me. They're 
related to each other, but they're not identical. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Hega. Yeah. I mean, that's my sense too. And that's what makes this particularly hard, this verse particularly hard. Um, as Hega says, uh, the Septuagint doesn't translate Kippurim, the, that core Hebrew word for, um, uh, for atonement. Um, uh, that's the word that's translated Halasmu using this Greek word in uh, Leviticus 25.9, the day of atonement verse I was looking at. Um, it doesn't translate that word with just one word. Uh, so the Hebrew has more instances than the Greek. Uh, it seems like a word that is not used all that often. Yeah, Halasmu seems like a word that is not used all that often. Um, he's using an unusual, a sort of obscure word for atonement, sacrifice, sacrifice of atonement, propitiation. Um, and that's what I find most tantalizing, right? Um, because in general, I am accustomed to finding when an author goes out of his way to choose something, to do something different, to do something unusual, um, to use a very uncommon word for a thing when there is a very common one available, right? But when he chooses to avoid that, the, those come more common words and to use a, an unusual one instead, um, I get suspicious. That is suspicious that he's doing it for a reason, right? That he has a purpose in mind, that there's a, a particular connotation that he's going for here. And I don't know what it is. That I, I, I don't know what John's, what the connotation of helasmos is in this case. Um, yeah. Um, Stephen, I think the answer is it varies. In the first century Palestine, where the Jews reading from the Septuagint or from a Hebrew text, um, I, I mean, of course, many were, I mean, like the Pharisees were still using the Hebrew text, of course, but there is lots of evidence that the Septuagint was in general circulation, that there were a lot of first century Jews um, who were using the Septuagint as well. Like the Septuagint is in circulation and um, there's, there, there's a lot of evidence that the Septuagint influenced the New Testament authors in particular. Like there are some word choices that they use, which make sense in the context of the Septuagint that like, basically when they, there are a bunch of places when the New Testament writers are clearly like Jewish dudes thinking, you know, Hebrew concepts, right. And translating them into Greek when they're writing. Right. Um, and when they do that, like the words that they choose often, not always, but often echo the choices that the Septuagint translators made when they were translating those same concepts uh, into Greek. Um, so there's a, there's, there's enough overlap between the Greek words that the new Testament authors chose to represent some of these particularly, you know, Hebrew Bible concepts. Um, there's, there's enough similarity between that and the Septuagint choices that I think it's not a coincidence. I think that it's, it's, it seems to be in circulation. Um, uh, yeah. See, Stephen, that's, I, that's exactly a question I wish I knew. Um, would John's audience have associated this word um, with Kapurim? Uh, the Hebrew word. Um, so when they hear him say halasmos, um, do they immediately think like, oh, he means he means kaporim, right? He means atonement. Um, with all of the freight that that word has 
complex freight that that word has, especially centered in Leviticus? Um, or would they likely have heard it more from the pagans? Is this a word that they would first and foremost associate with the sacrifices that are going on, you know, next door or down the road uh, in the temple of Zeus? I, I don't know. I, I, that's, I, I, that's, I wish I knew that. I wish I knew that. I would say, Stephen, the evidence to me suggests that it's not primarily, primarily the first. Again, halasmos isn't the word that the Septuagint seems to use most of the time. Based, hey, I was really, I was, um, what I was wondering was primarily was was it used anywhere in Leviticus one through seven? That is the descriptions of the sacrifices that we get. This, the, the, the like the five base five, I think it's five basic kinds of, of of sacrifices that are described in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. I was wondering if the word halasmos came up there. So I'm interested to hear that it didn't in the Septuagint translation of uh, of the Hebrew Bible. Um, so again, with that being the case, Stephen, like. If Halasmos is used in 25.9, which is a reference to the Day of Atonement, but it's not even like the main reference to the Day of Atonement. There's like whole sections describing the Day of Atonement elsewhere, which don't apparently use the word Halasmos. Um, so it seems like, I don't know, with, with, the, with the Septuagint translators being like, we're sick of using the other words. Let's go with this one to shake it up. I, was there a particular reason? I don't know. Um, but it does not say, given its scarcity, the scarcity of the word halasmos in the Septuagint, I would say that um, the conclusion I would draw from that is that it is not, does not have a core association. Um, it's certainly not the Greek word that would pop to mind. Um, it would seem to me when somebody was thinking about atonement from, you know, from Leviticus, atonement from uh, the Torah. Um, and so therefore, that doesn't help me answer the question. So why on earth is John using that word here, right? When no other New Testament author in any other place uses it except him in one other place, right? Only twice is it used, both in this epistle. Um, he's using a weird word, an obscure word. Um, that seems to be a fact. Why? I don't know. And I wish I knew more. Um, would love to hear more. Anybody who knows more um, or has any theories or ideas about this word, helasmos, I would love uh, to learn them. Um, but here's one thing that I do think seems to me relatively clear. And it's the way in which I said when we glanced ahead at 1 John 4.10, where he uses it again, um, uh, that second usage confirms me in, in this theory even more. And here's the theory. I think the way in which he's clearly not using this word is in the sense of turning away the wrath of God. I will sometimes, you sometimes hear commentaries and people discussing this as like, you know, when this concept of propitiation is being used, it means the atoning sin that turns away the wrath of God against sin. Now, I'm not saying that the turning away of the wrath of God against sin is like not a thing, right? I'm not saying that that's like irrelevant to the Bible or something like that, but I would say I see no evidence that there is a shred of that concept in this paragraph and even less in chapter four. 
right? In neither case is he talking about, where have we been talking about the wrath of God? Where does the wrath of God come in? The wrath of God, there's not been a, a hint. There's not been the faintest whiff of the wrath of God uh, in this entire passage, right? Um, so I do not, th- I, from, con- from the context of this paragraph, I cannot at all see that he means by, when he says that he himself, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins. I cannot see that this, now like forgiveness comes up, right? Forgiveness, cleansing, right? Cleansing from all sin, cleansing from all unrighteousness, right? Um, Those things are involved and seem to be connected with this idea of being the propitiation for our sins, right? Um, Most clearly is the reference back to verse seven, right? The blood of Jesus, his son. He dropped that, right? Um, he, he, He just drops this reference to the blood of Jesus, in verse seven, without any context or explanation at all, right? Um, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Think about, by the way, how the blood, we haven't, we didn't talk much about the blood at the time. And the reason we didn't is because there's nothing apparently linked with it in the rest of that sentence, right? The, we talked about the if-then structure, right? If we walk in the light, then we're cleansed from sin, right? And that's true. But he does have this reference to the mechanism in there, right? It's not like automatic, right? It's not, it's not just magical. If we walk in the light, if we walk in the light, then somehow our sins are just gone. We're told the somehow. He mentions the method, the mechanism, right? It's the blood of Jesus that leads to the cleansing. In the, if we, when, when, when we are washed in the blood of Jesus. Now, again, the if then still stands, right? If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, right? The if then, the, the link between the choice that we make about where we walk in the darkness or in the light um, is still causally linked to our being cleansed from all sin. But the mechanism that he alludes to without any explanation at the moment is the blood of Jesus. And I think that in coming to the propitiation for our sins at the end, I think he's kind of coming back to that, already sort of wrapping it. He's been hinting at that, right? That's his first hint. The blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. His second hint is he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And of course, the cleansing establishes that direct parallel with the cleanses us from all sin. So the blood of Jesus cleanses us from, from all sin. His, when we confess, he, forgive, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So his righteousness becomes our righteousness, right? Unrighteousness is cleansed from us just as all darkness leaves you when you walk into the light and now you are in the light, right? As he is in the light. Um, so too, when he, his righteousness, in his righteousness, he cleanses us from unrighteousness um, and forgives us our sins. So blood, forgive, propitiation seems to be the through line there, right? The thing that he's coming back to and wrapping up. He forgives us. 
how? How do we understand the forgiveness of our sin? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Why? What does his blood have to do with anything? Um, right? So, I mean, both there, there's those kind of like unanswered questions, right? Underlying those two things. And then in the end, he comes back to it. He's, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, so I, the best I can do is to think back to atonement, to Hebrew Bible atonement stuff. Um, since I don't know what else the word halosmos in particular is linked to apart from atonement, um, I, uh, um, uh, I gotta, I've, I've just gotta sort of run with that, but I don't think propitiation in the sense of turning away wrath. He's not been talking about wrath, the anger of God. What he's been talking about is blessing, right? Uh, and it com- keeps coming up in these blessing verses, right? In the verses of those verses of promise, right? If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. It's about our being made clean. It's about koinonia, right? Koinonia is the heart of this whole paragraph, the koinonia with God, the fellowship that we can have with God. It is the means by which we are brought into fellowship with God. It is that cleansing that enables us to come into the presence of the righteous God, right? Not only just to like endure the presence of the righteous God, but to be cleansed of our own unrighteousness so that we ourselves become righteous in the light as he is in the light, right? He's writing these things to us so that we may not sin, right? Um, So that we may actually become righteous. Um, Yeah. So, um, Let's um, let's let's pause a second. Let's look, Susan. Yeah, I was uh, Susan. I was just thinking a similar thing. Let's go back and uh, Hega. I'm going to look up some of those uh, other examples of where the word helasmos is used in the Septuagint. We don't have much, but we do have something, so we might as well use what we have. Uh, so the other is in Numbers, uh, Numbers five eight. Numbers five eight is what gets. Uh, we get Hawazmos again there. And in 5.8, we get, um, but, okay, but if the man have no kinsman to recompense the trespass unto, let the trespass be recompensed unto the Lord, even the priest beside the ram of the atonement, whereby an atonement shall be made for him. Okay, right. So that would be, um, which offering? It's like the restitution offering, isn't it? Okay. Well. In one sense, it helps in the sense that it's clearly about atonement, but in another sense, it doesn't help in that it's talking about a complete, the one, one reference was talking about the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, and the other uh, day, the other one is talking about the restitution offering, which is like a totally different, I mean, not totally different, but a quite different thing. Um, okay, hang on, we got a psalm uh here so let's let's uh let's we we got we, we got some poetry maybe poetry will help um so we're looking at psalm 129 verse 4 well, psalm 129 4 the lord is righteous he hath cut asunder the cords of the wicked oh really what the heck okay let's see hang on let's back up 
Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, may Israel now say. Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made their long furrows. The Lord is righteous. He hath cut asunder the cords of the wicked. Let them all be confounded and turned back that hate Zion. Let them be as the grass upon the housetops. Um, yeah. Okay, right. Uh, which, uh, uh, which withereth, for it groweth up, wherewith the mower filleth not his hand, nor he that bindeth sheaves his bosom. Neither do they, neither do they which go by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Okay. Um, the Lord is righteous. He hath cut asunder the cords of the wicked. Um, uh, boy, hey, that one's really tough. Is the word... Is it, um, oh, it's Psalm 130, Duh, of course. Classic blunder. Oh, classic blunder. Yeah, yeah, that's a classic blunder. By the way, this happens all the time. Man, I'm being sloppy. So um, there was a different numbering. One of the early Psalms gets split into two Psalms. Uh, in It was originally split into two Psalms and got combined into one Psalm. Uh, in uh, in moder- in a lot of modern, especially Protestant Bibles, and so uh, the numbering is off by one. Right? Okay. Phew. Yeah. No, you're. I told. No, I should have known that. I mean, I did know that, but I forgot that. And this happens all the time. It's like the classic problem that you have um, when you're reading like uh, 17th and 18th century stuff, and or no, 18th century stuff. And uh, calendar references, like, uh, you know, in in England, they're still using the Julian calendar, but they switched to the Gregorian calendar on the mainland. So, like, you always have to remember when you're doing historical research in 18th century European studies that, like, dates in England are, like, a week off for four days or something. I forget the exact number, but they're a little bit – it's not the same. So, if you're like, this happened on April 2nd here, you've got to translate in order to figure out, like, what day it was in England on the same day that happened, that that, that kind of thing. This is a classic example example of this like you got to know this okay sorry all right um okay so here we've got but there's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared okay so it's got it's obviously it's the word forgiveness that's really interesting okay out of the depths have i cried unto thee o lord lord hear my voice let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications but what a classic example of that kind of hebrew poetry structure i was talking about before right hear how verse two works there <clears throat> lord hear my voice let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications he's just said two things but he's actually said one thing right he's he first he says it simply hear my voice and then he says the same thing again, but he expands on it in a particular way. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. A classic Hebrew poetry move. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. Um there is forgiveness with thee. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, if you should keep if you, if you should be keeping track of sins, right? Um, who shall stand? But there's forgiveness with thee. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's the halasmos word. There's forgiveness with thee. Um, right. That is very interesting. That is very interesting. Okay. Um, 
here's, I think that the pattern, the way in which verse two here, chapter two, two, uh, verse two is picking up on the blood of Jesus and the forgiving our sins. I think it's that concept of forgiveness. It's, it's about mercy, about grace, not about turning away wrath. Um, it's, I guess that's the one thing I'd be prepared to argue with somebody about, right? You know, in a spirit of koinonia, um, if people wanted to say that John's use of the word propitiation here is suggesting a turning away of the wrath of God. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, right. So it's you being used to translate to translate selecha. Yeah, selecha. That's um, uh, mercy, right? That's 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 a, a mercy word, um, right? Am I remembering my Hebrew correct? I mean, my Hebrew. I say as if I can, you uh, as if it's I'm, I'm I am fit to uh, use a first person pronoun attached to the noun Hebrew in relation to myself. Um, I don't personally have any Hebrew, but I've picked up some crumbs of Hebrew vocabulary. Um, and as am, am I remembering my crumbs of Hebrew vocabulary? They're my crumbs that I can apply the word my to. Um, uh, but um, anyway, um, I don't think he's talking about turning away wrath. I think he's talking about um, um, I think he's talking about mercy. I think he's talking about forgiveness. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. He is the, the atonement, the sacrifice that leads to forgiveness. Um, our sins have been taken away. That's what this is all about. This, that's the context of this paragraph, right? Um, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What happens to the darkness when it goes in, when you go into the light? That's the dominant image, right? Of this entire paragraph. And that I think is what the propitiation for Jesus being the propitiation of our sins means in this context, right? Um, He is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice, which has taken away our sins. His blood cleanses us from all sin. We are made clean by his blood. That's again, that's his, 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 his emphasis, his reference all the way through here. Um, and I think that that's what he is pointing to here. Why does he do this? Well, I think there are two things um, that he uh, accomplishes. I think there are two things that he accomplishes in coming back to he himself is the propitiation from our sins. One is to bring out and bring together that reference to the mechanism, right? Yes, if we walk in the light, we will be cleansed from all sin. Yes, if we confess our sins, we will be forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. Yes, that will happen. How does it happen? Why does it happen? What is the, it's, that's, it's, it sounds like magic, right? What is the magic that takes away um, our sin, that cleanse? And the answer is the blood of Jesus, his son, right? Um, He is the propitiation for our sins. It was his atoning sacrifice that does the thing, that enables us to go from darkness into light. Why is it that if we are dark, if we have darkness in us, 
that we are not merely banished from the presence of God for in God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, right? And the answer is that Jesus is himself the propitiation for our sins, right? He is the key. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, keep in mind, I think we can't separate those two things, right? This is the same sentence, right? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation of our sins. Um, Jesus has two jobs here, right? He is our advocate, and he is our propitiation, right? Um, he is the, that, that power of cleansing, right? He is the, 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 the mechanism by which we can be made clean. And remember, that's what the sacrifices in Leviticus are all about. Right, the, the sacrifices in the Torah, um, the sacrifices of atonement, the sin offering, uh, the restitution offering, all of those things, right? All of those things, they're mechanisms by which God says, you can become clean. You can be cleansed from your sin. You can, under these circumstances and at these times, come into my presence, right? Um, it's all about enabling connection between God and his people, right? Um, uh, sometimes I think that modern Christians think about the law as merely a restriction, right? Like it's a whole bunch of rules uh, that are like designed to make you miserable or something, right? Um, no, they were, a, they were a lifeline, right? How can you come into the presence of the God of light? Well, uh, here you go. Here's how, here's how you can do it. It's possible. There's a mechanism, right? There's a mechanism that will show you the pattern, right? Um, uh, but it wasn't easy, right? And, uh, and it did not have the kind of power that John is ascribing to the blood of Jesus here. Um, to be cleansed from all sin, to be cleansed from all unrighteousness, to be made righteous like he is, to walk in the light as he is in the light, to have koinonia with God. Whoa. Okay. That's parallel to those things, but that's a big thing, right? That's a new thing. Um, and notice again how it is one of two things that he's telling us about what is at the heart of this sentence, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation of our sins, right? Um, what is the job description of Jesus Christ the righteous, according to John, in this sentence? Well, he has two roles. One. He is our advocate with the Father. He's our paraclete. He is the one who comes along. We, and we talked last time about that word advocate and paraclete, which kind of blew my mind. He, is, he, is our, he comes alongside us and speaks on our behalf. He comes alongside us to comfort and sustain us, right? So proximity, it's all about the side, right? So it's all about being at our side uh, is what 
uh, paraclete seems to, to, to mean advocate there, right? Um, he's the one who comes alongside us and also goes before us, also is the propitiation. He is the priest, right, in this sense, the priest who stands and speaks to God on our behalf, and he's also the sacrifice that goes before us into God, uh, you know, up to God, um, like the unblemished lamb, right, um, in the sacrifice of atonement, in the, 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 the whole burnt offering, for instance. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, so, but he's both of those things at the same time right? Both our advocate and our propitiation, both the priest and the sacrifice, um, both the one who is pleading our case and the one who enables the mercy to be shown, right? Who is, who is the, one, the one who sort of activates that mercy through that sacrifice of atonement, that propitiation for our sins. And then we get the final, the big conclusion, and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, by the way, sins here, plural, again, right? Um, for the sins of us, hamartion, um, hamartion, uh, the, the plural sins. So we're looking at the singular and plural sins from earlier on, right? We had, if we say we have no sin, singular, uh, and if we confess our sins, plural, he is faithful. So that seems to be a repeated and ongoing thing, right? Um, similarly, if anyone sins, we got the verb here, right? Um, he is the propitiation for our sins, plural, like those sins, plural, that we confess in verse nine, right? All of those sins, he is our propitiation. Um, and again, I love the way in which John seems to be combining like saying both at the same time, what might seem to some people to be a kind of a, an important theological distinction. Like, okay, okay, okay. Is it once for all or is it like repeatedly, right? Like, do we, um, are we forgiven just once for all, right? And then we're good. Or do we have to be forgiven like every single time? And the answer would seem to be yes, yes, both. Both, both seem to be true. We're cleansed from all sin, yeah. We're cleansed from all sin each time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's 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 that that's an ongoing thing. We are cleansed from all unrighteousness. And we stand ready to be, you know, he stands ready there at our side to cleanse us from all unrighteousness again. Uh, right, if we confess our uh if we confess our sins. Um yeah, does spokesperson work in English for uh paracleton hega? I I yes, I think. Yes, that's, it's like advocate. It doesn't, advocate is more um, courtroom specific, right? Spokesperson um, doesn't have, the difference between, in English, the difference between spokesperson and advocate is that advocate is only in a legal, like in a courtroom context, right? When someone is is making an argument on your behalf, um, sometimes it's used metaphorically, but it's generally a courtroom word, um, whereas spokesperson is a little bit broader, right? Just someone who is speaking on behalf of an organization or another person. Um, but that can be in lots of ways, like whether you're, um, you know, 
like dressing uh, addressing the press on you know you know uh, journalists and stuff on behalf of um, uh, of a, an organization say uh, you know like the White House press secretary or something um, or whether you're being a spokesperson um, in some other way I mean like there's a way in which I you know, I'm president of Signum University. And so I am Signum spokesperson in, you know, like things that I say, uh, you know, often I am speaking in the position of Signum's spokesperson. I'm speaking on behalf of the institution. Um, but that's not the same thing as advocating for it, right? I'm not making arguments in favor of it. Well, not usually, uh, but, and it's certainly not that kind of courtroom context. Like, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, but but I do think that, uh, uh, it's one of the things that I was wondering about the word paraclete is how I know that that word often is used in first century Greek in a specifically courtroom context, but how um, essential, essential, you know, basically that is, um, but um Yeah. Yeah, you're right, Devora. We do use the word advocate um, more broadly. I think it is becoming more and more, its metaphorical usage is becoming more dominant, I think. Um, like when you're advocating for something, right? Um, someone with power or authority standing up for someone who has none. Yes. Or not even, but you don't even have to have authority. But the idea is you're speaking up for something like you, someone who is not in a particular situation, who is speaking up for people who are in that particular particular situation would be said to be seen as advocating for it, right? Uh, most obvious example would be something like animal rights, right? Like few animal rights activists are, or advocates are in fact themselves animals, right? Uh, so that's a, that's a, a sort of an obvious example. Um, but I think that that's, there's still that sense of like, I am not speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for a group of which I am a part, um, but I am, I am, I am advocating uh, for, you know, this other group. Um, right. Yeah. Devorah says, I hear it in disability contexts a lot. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Now, nah, Susan, you're right. They're all animals uh, in one sense. Sure. Sure. But um, um, yeah. Anyway. Um, so So yeah, I'm um Hege, this is why I'm um thinking of this is why I'm really interested in your asking about this. I think that the choice of the word advocate to translate the word paraclete, paracleton there, um in verse one biases us towards a reading of propitiation towards turning away wrath, right? If you think of advocate as defense attorney, right? Um, if what the spoke, that particular spokesperson is saying on behalf of us is, um, please don't convict my client, right? Um, if it's a plea of, uh, a plea of not guilty or a plea for clemency, uh, right, to the bench, um, you know, then 
propitiation immediately sounds like a turning away of wrath, right? Because that's one thing that those two things have in common, right? A, a, a sacrifice of propitiation is designed to stop you being angry at me, right? If you're a, a pagan god. Um, and an advocate is designed to uh, either have no sentence of law fall up, you know, a punishment of law fall upon me or as little as possible, right? Um, and so that apparent sort of link between those two is um, it's hard to avoid. So if you're thinking about advocate in the sense of defense attorney, um, you're likely to think about propitiation in the sense of turning away wrath. Um, but I am not convinced. I, 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 I absolutely do not think that that connection, that that reading of those two is, in, is inescapable. Um, as I say, the context does not seem to me to point in that direction. And so I think perhaps for that reason, I would prefer a different translation to advocate. Um, uh, Hegge says it seems the Greek is more in the context of helping, like um, you know, speaking on behalf of someone in a sense of, of just sort of assisting them or helping them out. Um, more like the kind of advocacy we were just talking about. Um, uh, but um, yeah, especially when I think about the, only other context for the word paraclete that we get, right? If I go, I shall send you another, what is translated in the King James as comforter, right? Um, it's the same word translated comforter in one place and advocate in the other place, right? Um, and although both of those senses may be attached to that word, what are the senses in which, what are the senses they're being given in those contexts, right? Um, and um, uh and I wonder, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, if it's you know, a spokesperson who comes along, but it's still a spokesperson. So somebody speaking up for you, right? Um, he's our spokesperson. He is our propitiate the propitiation for our sins. If anyone sins, it's okay. It will be okay, right? We have a way back. We can get back into the light. We can be cleansed again. If we've been cleansed from all sin and cleansed from all unrighteousness, and yet we dirty ourselves again, it can be all right. We have a a helper. We have a spokesman. We have a propitiation. We have the one who goes before us uh, to uh, open the way, right? Uh, the way to cleanness, the way to acceptance. Um, that's what the animals being sacrificed were doing, right? In the Old Testament sacrifices. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Susan, Jesus knows what being human is like. He can represent us before the Father. Yeah, he can speak for us. He can speak for us, not just because he cares for us, but because he's been there, right? He's been human, sure. But he is the propitiation. He is also the unblemished lamb, right? The perfectly clean lamb whose righteousness cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. And then final step, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Um. 
this is open to everybody, right? This promise, this good news, this cleansing, koinonia is available to the whole world, right? That's this final direction that we get pointed. And I'm not sure yet what what the trajectory of this is for John. Like, where is he pushing us? Where is he pointing us? What What's the application, what's the intended application of that, if you see what I mean? Um, I mean, it's, uh, there are lots of ways in which we could potentially take that. And I'm not sure, which that is um, what, um, what is our connection of the world that he's wanting to talk about, right? What, what's, what's he trying to bring home to us here? Why is he bringing the whole world into this? Right. Um, uh, like what he's saying seems to be relatively clear that he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Right. That this same propitiation, the blood which cleanses us from all sin can cleanse everybody from all sin. Right. Again, that this, uh, this door, this invitation is open to the whole world to the whole cosmos, not to, um, not just, you know, to those of us in the know, not just to Jews. This is a, a, a broad general in, you know, as, as broad as possible invitation, right? Statement about what could happen, but what exactly are we meant to do with this? How does this fit in? Why does he bring this in at the end of this paragraph, right? Um, and I don't know. I don't know. One idea, one idea is that, um, so, I mean, I feel like there's like the obvious application, right? And therefore go tell the whole world, right? That to, to get to go all great commission, uh, in all great commission on this, right? In the, the end of that verse. Um, it's not that I think that that reading is like inappropriate or wrong or something like that. Um, but I'm not convinced that that's what's in John's mind here. And I'm not sure that that's the point that he's making. And the reason I'm not sure about that is that I haven't seen anything in the, you know, 11 verses leading up to this that has suggested John is thinking in that kind of way, right? Um, I mean, if we go back to what he was saying about, like, why? Why is he saying this? What's the purpose, right, of his proclamation? Why is he bothering to write this epistle in the first place, right? And the answer is, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and so that our joy may be made complete, right? Um, He's, you know, there isn't a, therefore go forth unto all nations kind of uh, element of that. Again, it's not like inappropriate, right? I'm not saying it's wrong, that that would be wrong. I'm just saying that doesn't, I don't see any reason to think that that's where John's head is in writing this stuff. Um, So my question is, where is John's head here, right? 
Um, one thing that occurs to me right away is simply that he, one effect of it, I think, of his expanding this out, the idea of Jesus's role as propitiation uh, to the sins of the whole world is to emphasize the efficacy of this, right? The significance of this. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. The blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all sin, right? How do I know? Why should I think that me, like, is this designed in part maybe to be a counteracting, a, a, a counteracting agent against somebody who might respond to this by saying, you know, but not like my sins. Like I get like maybe in general, but like uh, I've sinned really badly, right? Or something like that. Like, would it be um, surely this can't apply to me, right? And he's saying, yeah, everybody, including you, right? But also how much, you know, how much juice does this whole propitiation thing have, right? And there are limits, right? Um, you know, like, uh, he's the propitiation of our sins up to, but not exceeding, you know, like, I, I guess, and John is saying, no, 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 no limits, right? The whole, the sins of the whole world, this, every sin that everyone has committed, Jesus is the propitiation for it. So there is no sin that you've ever committed or ever could commit, which is going to fall outside the bounds of this. It is sufficient. It covers everything, no exceptions. And yes, I'm talking to you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I'm talking to you because the sin it's also for the sins of the whole world. Um, and uh, Devorah, I think that's another really good idea. Considering what he said about fellowship, maybe he's just reminding them that they need to be prepared to welcome anyone, not exclude people who want to come in. That's really good. We haven't really come back to um, this thing that he keeps dropping, but he's not really dwelt on it yet, right? You know, we, we've gotten it twice. We got it, um, you know, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Okay. Right. Um, tell me more, except he doesn't. Right. Um, and he's just talking about our, he doesn't talk about our koinonia with each other. He talks about our koinonia with God. And then of course he dropped it again in the middle of verse seven. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Whoa. Tell me more about that. No, he doesn't tell us more about that. Uh, and he talks about instead about the cleansing of sin and he talks about our koinonia with God. Right. Um, so twice now he's brought up this idea of our koinonia with one another, right? That we have koinonia with one another. And he's brought it up both times in ways that make it of huge central importance, right? But both times he's just dropped it on us and walked away, right? He's going to come back to it, but he hasn't yet. So Devorah, I like that. Um, that is kind of an implication, right? So there is a, one way in which you could sort of apply that last phrase, but also for the sins of the whole world, is to say, how do we say it to Brace yourselves, right? Brace yourselves. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. So think through what that means, right? Um, did I mention we have koinonia with one another? Um, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm giving you some time 
to wrap your brain around that, right? Uh, uh, then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get there. But yeah, I think that seems to me a very good application for that, Devorah. Very, very relevant. Um, yeah. And Hega, I, I, yeah, I think it's a good reminder in that way too. Um, on the one hand, John's focus seems to be on Christians. That is, again, I'm not saying that John is like anti-evangelism, right? But I don't think that that's his, his focus is not like, he's not telling you how to, you know, so far he's not been addressing non-believers. He's been addressing believers and he's not even addressing non-believers and telling them what to do vis-a-vis unbelievers. He's telling them about their own relationship with each other and with God, right? That's been his, his, his total focus all the way through. Um, and yet, Hega, it's a good reminder right? Our joy, he, he's writing these things so that our joy may be complete, right? But is our joy complete unless it's for everyone, right? What does, what does the fullness of joy look like? Perhaps the cleansing of the whole world is that that's really what will be the final perfection of our happiness, the final completion of our happiness when our fellowship with God and with one another is made is finished finally right um yeah yeah so um i think that that's probably a good little reminder there too right um yeah on the one hand i'm talking to you but on the other hand you're not in an exclusive club right um everyone is invited into this and so i think that that would have both the effect you were describing Hega, the um uh, your joy will be complete um, when it extends to everyone. And also, brace yourself. You're going to be joined by people that you might not even like, <laughs> right? And certainly that you might not um, uh, that you might not expect. And Stephen, I do think that the whole Jew-Gentile distinction might underlie that. I also, yeah, I don't see anything that points to that explicitly here. Um, but. Um, but it would certainly be applicable. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and even if it's not that divide, there could very likely be other, um, uh, there could likely be other um, d- similar kinds of divides, right? Um, that would need to be transgressed. Ooh, yes, exactly. Uh, Hegg is going back to verse four there, um, that our joy may be made full, that our joy may be made complete, like full, like filled up to the brim. Right. So hey, that suggests to me a really cool reading. And we'll end with this. Um, thinking about verse four, the end of the first paragraph and the end of the second paragraph in parallel, right? What if Hegel, what if he's making a play on that? These things we write that our joy may be made complete. Our joy, yours and mine, us within the fellowship of believers, but us also remember our fellowship was not just with each other, but with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So maybe the us applies not only to John and his audience, right? But to us, to an us which includes the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. If we're all one koinonia together, if we're in koinonia together, humans among ourselves and our koinonia, if, 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 if the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, are included in that fellowship, how is the joy of that us going to be filled up to the brim, right? And maybe we get our answer there at the end of the second paragraph. Want a glimpse 
of what God's joy filled up to the brim looks like? Yeah, Jesus being the propitiation of the sins for the whole world, right? The whole world, everyone in the world being in koinonia with the Father and with each other. That's what our joy in that full sense, that's what our joy being filled up to the brim would look like, right? That is awesome. Love that. Okay. And that, I think, is the end of the first, <laughs> the, of the first paragraph. Um, uh, and th- that is so much more satisfying. Um, I did like, when we were looking at verse 10, and I was thinking at that point that that was the end of the paragraph, it worked in the sense, I mean, that is, as we can see, the sort of the end point of all those if-then statements, right? So it, it is a kind of like internal conclusion, like, an in, you know, it, it sort of brings together um, all those other four if-then statements that we had to that point, right? Um, but it was not really rhetorically satisfying um, uh, as really kind of pulling together the entire paragraph and fitting it within like the, you know, the paragraphs of the epistle so far. This, this sounds much, much better. Um, Next time, we will move on to verse three, starting our third paragraph, really genuinely third paragraph. Third paragraph is short, I think. Um, We'll see what we think as we move forward. But, um, um, and it will be a follow-up to some of these ideas. We will see him uh, doing a similar thing there uh, in uh, in the next little bit that he was doing here in the second paragraph. Um, but um, I look forward to getting into the third paragraph with you. Thank you guys. This was, this has been awesome. I feel um, I learned so much from our discussion here today and uh, I look forward to uh, continuing to learn more together as we begin paragraph three next time. So uh, thanks everybody. Bye now. Okay, that's it for this week. I'll be back with another episode soon as we continue our march through 1 John. I'm glad you could join me. Godspeed.